And if there's any a time to be alive and for people to express, it's now. But, you know, I come from a generation that, you know, celebrating somebody that seemed a bit different was not really on the cards. Sometime about 10 years ago, I said, I think the internet need to be punked. It needs punk, brother. We've got to stop just listening to rock and roll. We need new genres. A mission, by the way, is, is what you do. Your purpose is why you're doing it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events and our awesome new sponsors, The Megaverse. Today's guest is an Australian futurist, a speaker, creative director, strategic digital consultant, and entrepreneur. He's known for his performance persona and his bold and polarizing moniker, The Digital Prophet. David Shing is a multidimensional creative who specializes in advising clients about inventive, effective, and sustainable approaches to optimizing brand value within the digital landscape. He is passionate about educating big brands about the unique opportunities afforded by the emerging digital, social and mobile technologies that exist today. He's flown all the way in from New York for this interview and I can't wait to share his story with you. This, I promise you, is worth you getting a notepad out, making some notes from the lessons that David will teach you. Megaverse, the digital frontier of tomorrow. Megaverse stands at the cutting edge intersection of technology and imagination. It's a virtual realm where the limitless expanse of the digital universe unfolds, offering users unparalleled experiences and interactions. With its advanced metaverse platform, users can craft unique avatars, forge connections, and even establish their own digital estates. It's more than just virtual reality. Megaverse is an expansive digital civilization teeming with opportunities for both individuals and brands. From immersive concerts to revolutionary retail experiences, Megaverse is redefining the way we engage with the digital world. As we stand on the brink of a new era where the lines between our physical reality and the digital realm blur, Megaverse is poised to lead the charge in this brave new world. Dive in and discover a universe without bounds. This really is the future. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Okay, so I'm going to call you David at the beginning, okay? I hope you can forgive me for that and you haven't done anything wrong. But David Singh, thank you for coming to join us on the podcast today. Lovely to have you here at your place on your show. Thanks for having me, Spencer. <laughs> so uh, I'll call you Shingy from now on because that's how you, <laughs> how you, like, you like to be called. But um, for the benefit of the audience, I want to mm. make sure that everyone, because you and I just had a chat, which, which is kind of, crossed over a few a- few areas and I've listened to quite a few of your talks and stuff that you've oh, done okay. and and and, and I, I like, I've done my research so I understand who you are in terms of your professional abilities Cheers. and I find you I find you're quite a fascinating character and I, I think you're quite multifaceted as well mm. um and I'd like to spend a little bit of time learning about not just the commercial side or the businessman that you are I'd sure. like to learn about who you really are gotcha um so I'm just going to repeat what you said to me before the camera started okay you come from a family Okay, you've got 10 siblings, or there's nine siblings plus yeah. you, so there's 10 of you. Mum, within 15 years, had 13 births. Okay, 10 survived, so she was basically pregnant for 15 years, solid. Yes, sir. You're from a small village in the, in the middle of nowhere between Brisbane and Sydney. Yep. Um, 
and and the cliche, your 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 uncle, what was his name? Uh, was uncle town, Pete. Uncle yeah. Pete was the was town, town drunk. drunk. Yeah, God bless. I love stories like this. Yeah. So just just for the benefit of everyone that doesn't know who you are, mm. just tell us a little bit about your upbringing and what kind of a kid you were and what kind of environment you grew up in. Yeah, Ripper Spencer, thank you, man, and truly, thankfully. Thanks for having me on the show because I think uh, I think the work you're doing is phenomenal. Well, thank you. And it's lovely to follow your your successes. So congratulations on all that you're doing. Thanks for calling me Shingy because when people call me David, it starts to sweat and feel like uh, I've done something wrong. So let's get that out of the way. But yeah, I'm from Australia. As you can tell, I'm a very brawny Aussie. Uh, I had an ambition when I was young to be a pretty serious kid. When you're one of 10 and you grow up in a Chinese restaurant, so you know, after this, if you want me to make dumplings or toss a wok for you, I'm very, very accomplished in the kitchen. <laughs> I walked around a kitchen growing up with a Coca-Cola crate and you used to stand on that to reach into the sink and if you could reach the bottom, you're the chief washer opera, et cetera, et cetera. So that, you know, I grew up with a crate and that got me navigating a kitchen until I wanted to leave home, which was as quickly as humanly possible. So that was at 17. Mm-hmm. But I had done everything you could possibly think about in a kitchen. Um, including being a bartender as, 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 as well as being a chef. So my background was really, I could have fallen into food. But I had a car accident when I was 11 years old. I got hit by a car and got dragged for two blocks. And I got airlifted to a different town and I'd lost the bottom of my face and had a lot, lots of damage elsewhere. So I've been living with chronic back pain and all these sort of issues. But it's not a boohoo story. But at that point, when you're, when you're part of a big tribe like I am with, a, with the Shings, and by the way, you know, there was literally a football field of people playing soccer every day and we had two dogs at the same time so we had somebody could jump the fence and grab the football so <laughs> the, the neighbor when he came to get the ball had already the dog had got it you know they weren't scared of the neighbor but i give you all this fodder just to say that you can get lost in the cracks you know uh-huh. but at that time when i had that car accident i came out the other end and i decided and i think my parents just decided there's enough kids in this space that we're, we're trying to manage let this kid do what he wants to do so I, when I was young, I had a, a radio show in high school and I had, uh, I used to sell Levi's jeans. I used to toss a walk. I used to be, you know, a nightclub DJ. Um, I had a bar license. So there's lots of things that I did as a kid, but I really wanted to study design and fashion. And so I left the country town I'm from and I went to Sydney, studied design. Um, I'm still a massive fashion designer today. Like mm-hmm. I could design a lot of my own clothes and all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff, but... I primarily want to be design. And the reason for that is I, un- I understand the, c- the power of brand really early and invented some internet technologies in my early 20s and raised some money and moved to New York. But my background was just kind of getting stuck in the numbers of a big family and just wanting to be really kind of creative. So truly wanted to be a polymath. Like I didn't understand what that word was until people turn around and say, you have so many interests that you care about. What's yeah. What do you care about most? I'm like, connecting in any way that is you know did you feel as as a kid in that environment that that you know you had to fight to get attention oh god yes mate i mean it was a two-bedroom house 12 people two bedroom at very humble beginnings four of us are at the bottom there's four boys and we were so close that and our birthdays are close that you'd get one christmas present before the four boys or you bloody boys if you're in trouble you know it's like they're going to try to swing at one of us and they're going to hit one of us but they don't know who you are, you know, because we're kind of, you know, we all look, we're mixed Chinese, Irish, English, you know, you get proper cliche, mate. <laughs> and But I slept in a converted veranda until I was, you know, um, almost left home. So, yeah, oh, yeah, you had to fight for attention. So you in that in that instance, you either stay very close to the nest or you go the opposite. And I'm out of my siblings, I'm the only one who's lived overseas 
for any extended period. Oh, really? Um, I don't have many of them that visit me. You know, I went back to Australia two weeks ago to do a, do a, a talk and I had seven of my siblings turn up. It was kind of like a family reunion, but they don't all live in Sydney. Uh-huh. So it's like a bunch of bumpkins. You know, I love them to bits. They just don't like the city so much, you know, and all we want to do is sit in a Chinese restaurant and, and natter and finish each other's sentences. And, you know, it's, it's what happens when you're in a very, very close environment. So, so, so what did it feel like when you moved to Sydney? You know, you've arrived in this city. It's like now you've got a chance to be you, really. Yeah, I was, you know, it was a blessing because my sister was living in Sydney. So I lived close to where she was, and that was wonderful. But the ability to kind of understand that I had a craft, like something I could focus on. I'm a classically trained designer, mate. So if you want to talk about fonts and kerning and, you know, how the good old days were, you know, before desktop publishing came and try and killed an industry. And, you know, <laughs> it's funny because it didn't. It, it just made it even more interesting. So as somebody who wants to express and be part of the design world, it was always... It was bloody awesome, to be honest. And then the flip side of that is my sister's a hairdresser, so I've had very weird experimental hair all my life, uh, starting at about the age of eight. Oh, really? I think the first thing she did, because, you know, she was an apprentice. Uh, You know, she needed experiment monkeys. Mannequins, yeah, yeah. And we were them, man. So, yeah, the (laughs) 80s were beautiful for me, and I've just carried that on to now. (laughs) Have have you you always felt a bit different to people? Yeah, a little bit strange. And, Misfit and, toy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And over the years, has that evolved from feeling like, a, as you described, misfit toy into really being actually proud of the fact you're different or, yeah. or leaning into it way yeah. more? Uh, thanks for that question. And, and I love where this conversation is going because I had no idea what we're going to talk about, by the way. So I'm, I'm thrilled with this. Yeah, it really did. And it was very hard in my early 20s because I thought, do I need to conform should I be wearing a three-piece suit? Yeah. There's this thing called the multimedia. Is it is it hip? Is it cool? Is it uncool? Is it conservative? You're just trying to find your way as a person, but also in the in the industry you're in. The industry was emerging. You know, it's just pre-internet days, dude. And <laughs> it was interesting because when you try and create that definition, uh, throughout my career, I, I gave you a little bit of introduction to that, is that I ended up joining AOL. And I joined AOL when it wasn't a very cool brand in Europe. In fact, it was one of the most hated brands in Europe, uh, which gave me pause, uh, which was a good thing, really, because all I had to, I had to build it up. It couldn't go further down, dude. And it was amazing because it pre-buttoned-up company. I mean, to the point where they do a sales meeting, and when they had an invited guest from the US come over, they would ask some of the people to go home and get changed because it wasn't quite conservative enough for oh, them. really? Very strange very values. Very stiff. Very stiff. And then yeah, they have this weird-looking dude, you know, who's, you know, doing this new territory stuff, which was pioneering for them, launching new countries, etc. Um, big hair, black nail polish, blah, blah. They just couldn't reconcile it. But they just knew that I was there to do some sort of change. And it felt like there was going to be a cultural shift. And there was a cultural shift happening in the internet. And I was also representing that inside the AOL company. Um, and it ended up being celebrated. And I, by the way, I can only credit that to the leadership. I mean, you have people who get threatened by that and think, this is not representative of our brand. Um, how can this person, this is just weird. Mm. And, you know, you get the right sort of leader and they're just like, there's going to be value out of this. We just have to stand back and let it happen. It's interesting, you know, when you think about it, it's like you look at someone like you being in a, I don't know, an Ernst & Young or a, a KPMG, <laughs> that kind of that, that, that suited environment and you, you know, externally looking very, very different and someone having the foresight to go, no, let's just, let's just see how this plays out. Rather than, no, no, we can't do this. This Amen. is not right. It doesn't you, fit with the model. Well, I also say that, you know, people like, 
Ernst and Young and KPMG have the privilege to go in and speak to them, or the you know EMYs of this world, or these traditional consultancies. You know, I get to come in and help mess around with them on their innovation days, and it's very it's very cool to see how everything's kind of navigated towards this cultural shift of self. And if there's any time to be alive and for people to express, it's now. And yeah, you know, I have a six-year-old daughter, so I'm very excited about her ability to express and be what she wants to be and be celebrated. But, you know, I come from a generation that, you know, celebrating somebody that seemed a bit different was not really on the cards, mm-hmm. not particularly in my upbringing, certainly mm-hmm. not the town I'm from, et cetera. But now it's, you know, that type of um, positioning <laughs> is celebrated. Did You say that with AOL, they kind of like, they put a bit of trust in you to take that journey. But up until AOL, had you faced pushback? Yeah, only in the in the sort of multimedia times. So, okay. but prior to being a, a founder of a company, prior to being part of the sort of energy of the internet, because it became you know a place that's cool to be, but it still it still sort of reflects a lot of conservative behaviours depending on what part of the spectrum of that you're in, whether it's the tech, the dev side, you know. And so, I'll, I'll give you an example. So, joining AOL, there's a ton of people that worked there at the time, maybe fourteen thousand people or something. And I had a very large dev team that, that helped support the new territories that I helped launch. And they were in Ireland and you have some in Germany. And, you know, they're all, and we also had a big team in Bangalore, as you'd expect. Mm-hmm. But still very conservative because they've been working on AOL Mail as a brand, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And we were coming in to build these new verticals, you know, like a man site and a women's site and a, a you know, car site and a music vertical. And these, things, these genres are pretty hot. But they just had to be – they had to change their thinking. So we had developed some. We had developed a different cultural muscle, and the brand felt like it was twenty years old. Mm-hmm. So we had to change the brand to reflect where the future was going. Convince everybody inside the business this was a cool idea. And when you stand in front of a, a surly group of developers that have been working on this brand for anywhere from six months to twenty years, and tell them we're going to reboot this thing to be a cultural monster, they just look at you and like you're joking, man. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to you got to take that crossed arms. And open those human behaviors and understand you can trust this, but I'm going to win your trust. And, you know, you don't become successful unless you actually succeed in doing some of that. And I'm talking about in- internal reflections, but also externally, sure, you can, you've got all the values of what measurement and success look like. But internally, it's what people say about you when you're not around, isn't it? Now, it took a long time for me to sort of unwind some of that attitude, which is that, hmm, let me cross arm you. I don't get this. Right. There's this attitude that I find. So I have this privilege of speaking to very large groups as you do. But when I, when I present at these audiences, there's, there's this human behavior that I've, I've certainly recognized pre-pandemic more so. It's definitely coming back now that people are three days a week, for example. You do a town hall, and you can tell me whether this is true or false, brother. Uh, what happens is that the senior management team typically turn up early. Mm-hmm. They all sit up front row. They all pay attention. They eat all the cheese, drink all the wine, laugh at all the jokes, blah, blah. They turn up early. People that are really in the company that are toxic also turn up early and they stand back. Mm -hmm. And the ones that cross-armed, you know, they're kind of don't want to look anybody in the eye. They come here to be a naysay. They're negative as hell. And yet in the middle, which is where companies really need to amplify the next level of management, seats are empty. And people straggle in at the end and they, they sit on the outer side. Nobody sits in the middle. It's really interesting how to sort of understand that human behavior in that culture. And as somebody who's stood in front of these audiences for years, I get a sense of what happens with a business culture immediately by the organization of humans and what that culture means and how the influx of that, it's, it needs to change. So I don't really care about the ones at the back. God bless. 
let me help you move into another organization and move you on mm-hmm. because you're very toxic to this organization. I don't care about the front row because they're clearly all being taken care of and they they love them they love their position. That's great. So let's potentially retain that, but I care about the nurturing part of the middle. And they're the ones that nobody ever really focuses on. Why? Because the managers don't typically give them enough feedback today. They want a different type of feedback loop than perhaps you or I wanted when we were kids because I really wanted nothing. I wanted just to get my job done and you know get on with having a, a great life where people care about their careers. By the time people are 30 today, they're going to have seven or eight, not jobs, careers. And that could be within a business if people nurture them correctly. The problem is leaders today aren't developed in their mindset to nurture the next generation some of them either threatened by them or don't understand what those leadership looks like or understand what human empathy is to give them those tools to move into those new positions that are either should be created or a job that should be extended. You know what I mean? Not mm-hmm. just a, not just what's written on the paper. Mm-hmm. It's what do you actually feel you can contribute to. There's a risk in that. And a lot of people don't care to give that risk because they've already built their management skill within a company and therefore they're defined by it. And they're threatened by you know, sharp people within organization. My success at place like AOL was simply because that leader had had great success but understood how to identify talent, nurture them, and just give them ropes. I'll give you an example. I worked for Kate Burns in, in the UK, and she was one of the first uh, people for Google outside of the US, younger than I am, uh, and just this, f- you know, fiery, fabulous leader. And I remember at the time she said, Shingy, I want you to be the full-time head of marketing and media for us. I said, Kate, I have no, I have mar- tons of marketing experience. I don't have a lot of media experience. She goes, but you're smart. Figure it out. I thought, wow, what? How confident is that, man? Most people just wouldn't have that as a, as a baseline. Mm. You know, it's just that 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 width to try and figure it out. Which you know, clearly, you need to do it at speed. You need to be smart, all that sort of thing, to identify that somebody has the capabilities of doing it. Mm-hmm. They just haven't had the opportunity to present that. Oh my goodness. I was like a kid in the candy store. I can so imagine. First thing I did was went out and hired somebody who was uh, one of the top publishers. And I said to them, my pitch to them was very simple. You know nothing about digital. I know everything about it. I know nothing about media. But you know everything about it. Why don't we do a swap here? So I brought her on as a head of publishing and she just, we built all these verticals and she's gone on to do bigger and better things. And I'm very excited by that and super, super mm. proud of that. You know, have this privilege of having these people come in occasionally um, you know, I, I, I reconnect with people when I when I do certain consistent festivals, for example, like the Cannes Lions in, in France. Yeah, yeah. I've been doing that for like 15 years, mate. And I have people bump up to me and they often say things like, you know, you said to me after a talk one day that I could be whatever I needed to be and this is the most incredible time to be flamboyant, et cetera, et cetera. And I run, I'm the head of social at Twitter, for example, and I'm like, oh, my God, wow. She goes, you're the only person who's ever seen me. And I go, wow, wow, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't really, I've had people, you know, say, you are the reason I'm in this industry. And it's like, whoa, that's awesome. Not because I'm happy hands, because I really touched their ability to be better. So if I can affect people's ability to be more innovative, more creative, more themselves after they leave the room, job well done. But to get that feedback today, that's part of the culture that I care about. Mm. Sorry, it's a bit of a it's a bit no, of a it's, ramble. It's really relevant I re- I, I, because there's, there's essentially two areas that I want to focus on here, and one of them is the people, and the other one is essentially understanding because a lot of people don't understand the difference between brand marketing, right. um, sales, which is again a big thing for me. But but also that there tends to be more. It's more. Uh, 
pigeonholed nowadays than yeah. it's ever been. <laughs> yeah. It seems to be this is this is what you do here and this is what you do there and this is what you do and that that's the formula. But I look at the formula and I'm like, is it? Yeah, well that's interesting, Spencer. You should given you asked that. If you have too much of a formula, you end up with something. If I lead the horse to water here, I would say we're homogenized. And you know, I truly believe we're polymaths. I mean, within the five minutes of preamble that we did, I already understood that you've done You've had a, a myriad of different places in your career and lived in different places. One that already gives you cultural relevance and two that gives you the ability to be versatile. But the fact that you're going into places just because you have a heart for it, that's incredible. Now today, people are told that you know that this is what they should do. Um, they should become a specialist. The problem with a specialist is that yes, it's great to be a subject matter expert, but you better have a you better become a generalist everywhere else. And that starts at your entree to life and your exit at work. Because if you just stack in your lane, if you just do that one thing that you said that you're really good at doing, then you don't actually provide any additional value to yourself. And I truly believe people are polymaths. They have the ability to do different things that all ultimately end up in the expression of the business or their, their commercial life. But can they make that all happen commercially? That's the new frontier. But homogenization is no good, bro. And it's happened... It's happening more and more. And what I mean by that, just in the internet culture, you know, I grew up in Web 1 and then I joined a big platform. So when Web 2 happened and we ended up with having all these platforms, we're now going to this, potentially going to Web 3 where it's all about, you know, little tiny nano pieces of engagement and data spread everywhere, et cetera, et cetera. And we may not have these one, two, three, four, five big places we constantly visit. But the truth is we're not there yet, right? So we're in these environments. You know, you're told that if you're going to be this one of the top 10 brands in the world and you're fashion forward, for example, and you then have to go and sit in a social grid that is this wide and you're told that's your box to express in, that's not the culture that we're looking for. We're looking for the opposite of homogenization. I mean, I think some sometime about 10 years ago, I said, I think the internet need to be punk. It needs punk, brother. We got to stop just listening to rock and roll. We need new genres and it needs to be less homogenized because what happens is we just don't have places to express. But I say that in, that, in the context of business, People have the ability to be a generalist, but they have to be, sorry, a specialist, but they have to be a generalist to be able to understand the entire workings of the business and also understand how they can participate in those because you can jump careers within, within the genre of the same business, not a job, a career. You could come in as a data analyst but leave as a head of sales or account management or creative or end up being a producer or you have the ability to be completely dimensional which I don't necessarily think, it's new. I don't think that was, those rails were ever um, so open when, you know, if we even roll it back 10 years, you know? When you look at the work that you've done and you take into consideration the challenges that you see lots of businesses face, let's, yeah. let's talk about the brand at the moment because oh, sure. I remember going to an, an event here in Dubai. It must have been seven or eight years ago where user-generated content was spoken about. Right. <laughs> All right. It may be even longer, but I remember this guy because the guy come up on stage and the thing that resonated with me a lot is that we had lots of Emiratis in the room and he said, I'm really sorry, guys, I've got a stinking hangover. <laughs> Please forgive me. And as he said it, I cringed. I was like, that's not the best thing to say yeah, here yeah, in this part yeah. of the world. That's yeah. some years ago. But he was talking about user-generated content and he, and he took Atlantis, the hotel uh, up the road, um, as the example. And I was fascinated by that. I'm like, what's happening here is that we've got this content that's being created by other people 
that almost is more valuable than it's being created by the creator. Right. I was, so I, I was like, wow, that's really cool. But I don't see people talking about that. I don't see it being, you know, uh, effectively used. When I talk to people about their marketing strategy and their, any of that kind of stuff, and that's never that's never brought up in conversation. But it was said so many years ago. Now I've listened to a couple of your talks. You talk about UCG as well, you know, yeah, sure. UGC, sorry, uh, as well, and and it's pretty standard. I I am struggling with everything that I do to find a way, and it'll take me because everybody knows me on the, on this show to 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 understand. If there actually should be a formula that has to be followed to get from A to Z, or because everything has changed so much, we need to just be really open to as much creativity as possible and find something that, regardless of who has got that creativity as well, for that matter, find something that kind of, along with some data and some analytics, fits into who we actually are. Amen. I mean, you're answering the question, right? And the thing that's fascinating about it is that, you know, things like UGC that were talked about 10 years ago is, is very fashionable now. And part of that's a reflective of the platform, right? So if you look at the emerging platform of TikTok, if you don't have something that feels like it's earthy, which might not be a vibe for a lot of people, you know, I'm a pretty buttoned up creator. I look like a hot mess, but I'm a very organized, very, um, I'm, I'm very aware, you know. And so the, the vibe of that sort of design of some of those platforms are, are, are in experimentation mode. And they're in experimentation mode for you to experiment with to determine whether or not things become contagious. And then that platform develops more of it. So you are part of the development cycle. And that's great for some people. It's not great for all. And it's not great for some brands. But when they can understand what they're looking for, and some of those new characteristics are very different than what we've had before. And so in some verticals, for example, authority, which is the thing that we would talk about a lot. Like, how do you have brand authority? Brand authority gives influence. Influence, therefore, becomes the ability for somebody to have a better mindset for your brand, and then there's a purchase. It's not a funnel. It's a different type of influence that we're talking about by association. Well, that's not necessarily true today. It's, I believe it's affinity. And that affinity, is, that could come from somebody being far more organic with your brand than you determining what that brand is, and that's part of the problem. And, and brand is critical. Brand isn't marketing. Brand is separate to marketing. How you amplify your brand is is the marketing itself. But the brand definition, the bit that I care about in the brand, when I talk to brands, they're going to talk about mission, vision. The one that I care about most in all of that is values or purpose is how it's called today. And the reason why I care about that most is that's how the, that's the why they do it. The why is the hardest thing. How you do it? That's the experimentation that you are, the opening question. That's experimenting. But that's what you're going to do. That's probably your mission. How are you going to do it? That's really, you know, that's something completely, that's really the platforms and how you're going to do it. But the why, which most people don't address, that really comes down to purpose. And purpose isn't a tagline. And that's what most people don't focus on when we think about I'm, brand I'm, marketing. I'm going to, I'm going to try and be a bit of a guinea pig here because some people will resonate with this. We're 285 episodes in. And we know if you get this far in the world of podcasting, then you're in a, a very small percentage of podcasts that have made it this far. Yes, sir. And I can understand why so many people give up after two or three or 10 or 20. And, and, and the podcast has, has, has moved in different directions over the years. So it started off big time into personal development. We had Tony Robbins graciously came and joined us on the show and the Gary V's and all of these sure. big, big names in that whole kind of like world. 
And then I interviewed somebody that had been on death row for 20 years for a crime he didn't commit, which was completely left of field. Mm. And I sat there with my jaw wide open for an hour as this guy spoke beautifully about this horror he'd been through. Wow. And it was like, that's a real story. I don't want a rags to riches story. I want someone, I, want, I felt for that one hour of my life, I just felt everything he said. I was in, I was in that prison with him, yeah. you know, the whole part of it. So then we went down this path of focusing on people that had been through really difficult journeys, but had come out the other side and were, were you know, had every right to wave the white flag, but actually went on and looked at the positives in life. Mm. We had people that were sold into pedophile rings. We had people that had been child slave labor, you name it, all kinds of stuff, but fascinating, like truly fascinating. If it's, if it's a book of stories, that's the stories to read. And, and, and the podcast didn't get as much traction and some people started to say to me, I can't listen to it, Spence. It's too harrowing. It's just like, it, 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 you know, it's just tough. It's really hard to listen to. And so we then kind of leant back and went back into the, the world of business and, and started to look at personal development again. And, and crypto became a thing. And so we started talking sure. about crypto and, and the blockchain and that kind of stuff. The, the, the truth is, it's those... those if, if it was just because I cared about it and it was for no other reason, it wasn't a, a, a commercial or a business pur purpose behind it, those, those, those really emotional stories are, are what I connect with. However, we have to understand that there's a business attached. This costs, you know, quarter mm -hmm. million dollars a year to produce. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, there's, there's money behind it, so it has to be worthwhile. So just give me some context. I really, okay, find it hard having to be pigeonholed into being somebody or something for the benefit of it because I just want to be me and me is inconsistent and erratic and reliably inconsistent and reliably <laughs> erratic <laughs> Fair? Mm. okay um and, and because of that the team find it really hard to get me down a one lane There's been an episode that's gone out every single week for the last five years. There's never been there's never been an episode missed. We don't have any trouble getting guests on the show because people like the show from what they see. Is it the best show? No, hell no. Okay, are there better shows out there? Hell yeah. <laughs> and if you wanted to learn about, I don't know, fashion design, I'm sure there's a better podcast of fashion design. If you wanted to learn about personal development only and nothing else, and that was your niche, then I get that. But I find it really hard to stick to it. Because I care about more than one thing. Uh, and when you said being a polymath earlier, it's just like I, whether I've got attention deficit disorder or whether I'm just interested in more than one thing, I don't know. When you take somebody like that and you, and you look at that type of situation, what does it make you think? Well, let me ask you, let me ask you a couple of questions. So you talk about having this more of a radius than what you've potentially been pigeonholed into. Mm -hmm. what, what is your, what's your tagline? So the, the podcast is called Unscripted with Spencer Lodge. Challenging mediocrity, inspiring success. Okay. I personally just like the inspiring success part of that. Yeah. Because unless you've got a methodology to challenge the mediocrity, then I would call bullshit on it. So you, if, if in every podcast you decide what's the inspiration piece, what's the challenge, I'm here for that. Mm -hmm. so, but if you don't address the challenging piece, then you, you're only doing half the value. 
So that tagline will not be sustainable, um, just as a heads up. So that's my immediate reaction to tagline. What that tagline is, is actually a value statement. So if that's why you're doing it, is those two things, you have permission to broaden the scope of what it is that you do just by definition of the purpose of what you've just discussed, not the tagline. So if you kept your tagline as unscripted, it's wide enough, whatever, dude, that's okay, very platonic, but it is enough. And then you have the ability to have Spencer scripted, Spencer unscripted, um, Spencer stories. You know, you have the ability to go off and use part of your definition of self Mm -hmm. or it could just be lodge. You know, there are things that you could actually determine that is the higher value of that and give you permission to actually splinter it. But we went through this whole cycle because it was called the Spencer Lodge podcast and we brought this company in to come and help us rethink Mm -hmm. it, yeah? And I didn't understand really why, but I was willing to to learn and understand. And so it's going from being called the Spencer Lodge podcast to now being called Spencer Unscripted. In terms of calling bullshit out and stuff and challenging people, my, my job is to allow, depending on who the guest is, them to share their story, but to to, to push back if I disagree. Yeah, great. You know, I, I'm not the person that sits down and goes, oh, okay, that's what it is. Well, you're, you're, you know, you're Yoda. Mm-hmm. You know, as far as I'm concerned, if, I, if I'm thinking shit, then... I'm, 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 I don't have a social filter, so I, I, I struggle to hold it back anyway. That's the unscripted. It pours out of my yeah. eyes and my ears, so it's going to come out of my mouth eventually. Yeah. But it's like, a, this is a business. Yeah, okay? but the things that you're super interested in that don't feel like they d- d- are defined into your podcast business could be the unscripted off the podcast. So there's no reason why you can't take your production team into the field and, and you're going to shoot the person to the interview of the person who's been on death row in a different context. It's almost like the buttoned up Spencer inside here in the all black studio does the business, but the true unscripted is more of a a UGC, more of a, okay, let's turn the camera around. It's a dirty shot. We're going to go do this. It's a sort of less suited and booted. You know what I mean? Yeah, sat on a park bench. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah. you change your context. It's like, if you stay in the same kitchen cooking the same food in the same way, that's great. But you can also have a fast food restaurant as well. Your, your franchise could be wider. And I think the Spencer more so than the Lodge is, is more relaxed and unscripted allows you to also add story to it. So I think you have plenty of tentacles. The thing that I would challenge you is to make sure that your purpose and values, the why you're doing it, is the lock because that would give your team the steer. Because then now they're like, oh, for every three buttoned up business style person that we have here that could be a personality into themselves helps the business along awesome but every two we're going to do some good and that good is we're going to tell stories for others that need to hear this in odd places and you start to get known to be you know two out of five are going to be completely unscripted but undefined how does that not confuse an audience though well you'll get a new audience out of it Ah. So I'm not talking about the same audience. The same audience loves what you do. Good, God bless. But so what? Looking for new audiences, aren't you? I mean, I think you are. I think that's why you're doing it. And those audiences that that love what you do and are curious, let them go deep. I mean, slow journalism is beautiful. Let them go deep with it. You know, you're not defined by one thing. Because if you are, you know, as the hype cycle comes faster and faster and crypto goes up and down like yesterday and NFTs and blockchain and blah, blah, which are things you're probably super curious about. But if you're more impassioned about people's stories, incredible. And also those, that platform for that content could be elsewhere. 
you know, it doesn't have to be defined in the channels you are because it's also you probably do enough content for the commercial side to take care of it. So what's the doing good bit? Where's the give back bit? That's give back to your own soul, but also give back to the person you're interviewing who haven't been called out like that, who haven't been able to have in a place they've never had two cameras on them. They've never been mic'd up ever in their life to be able to have this story. You know, they've been bloody through hell and back. And you give them an environment that doesn't make them feel like they're stiff and uncomfortable. You give them something that feels like they can have a heart-to-heart conversation. You and I sitting across this table is a definition of you and I having uh, the ability for you to push back on me. You're physically in a position to push back on me. If you and I sit on a park bench right now and had this conversation, that conversation would be totally different, brother. We would be leaning back. We'd have a slightly different conversation. We'd be looking out probably at the ocean. And the intimacy in that conversation would be way different than me telling you or you telling me, you know, how we can do better in business. It would be these are the human stories. So, you know, Spencer's stories and, you know, Spencer unscripted as the podcast. Yeah, you have the ability to define different audiences and become different going to be better for your own self-worth and your audiences can come with why because they have those same curiosities you go and speak to any of those fans in your podcast and ask them about a story they haven't told their favorite dog story for example it's going to be totally different than you would have expected mm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. a person on the football field for you 23 year old mm-hmm. totally different mm-hmm. you don't that probably doesn't come up in conversation all that time maybe with you and i because we immediately become fast friends i suspect but for others, you know, they're buttoned up until you ask them those questions. It's not going to happen in the table like this. It's not going to happen with you and I cross table like this. It happens when you look out. And that can happen with those human stories. You can also bridge it with these suited and booted stories you do with subject matter experts by leaving enough time, that 30% of it, to make sure we're talking about things that make us feel like we're doing this together. You know what I mean? It's fascinating, isn't it? Because I've always had this ambition to, to film some episodes, literally. And, and just the picture is exactly this. On a park bench, shorts and flip-flops, sandwich from a sandwich shop, and a flask of coffee, like, yeah. like we used to have when we were young, you Amen. know, with the, yeah. the screw-top. The yeah, the old Stanley. Cups. Yeah, the Stanley, that's right, yeah. yeah. And Thermos. just like two blokes sat there, okay, sat on that park bench, eating away at um, egg mayonnaise sandwich or whatever it might be with a cup of coffee. Do you want, do you want a cup of coffee? Yeah, yeah, and pouring it out. That, that, that to me, it just feels really intimate. Oh, and it's open because firstly, the posture's different, so you're already setting it up differently. And, and more importantly, audiences love the behind the scenes. So when I, I do a bunch of interviews, they're called Shinger Views. And what's interesting about it, what a cliche. <laughs> <laughs> but what's amazing about it is what you end up in the edit is great, but I publish this book called Shinger. Uh-huh. And it's a, like a, if we sit down for an hour and chat, you end up with a three-minute, four-minute video. It's all polished and fabulous and soundtracked and mastered. Yum. But there's 40 minutes of conversation or an hour of conversation that people could read through if they care. So I publish it in magazine form, the entire script. Really? Yeah, I've done it with Kevin Spacey, Imogen Heap, Mary J. Blige. I mean, people that, you know, that were really kind of culture makers. Yeah. And for me, that allows it just to be different. And that's where Sloan journalism come in. If somebody wants two and a half minutes, great, there it is. But the rest of it, you know this, the green room conversations are always amazing. So how do you actually do that in yourself? I would hack your brand a bit, man, and I would turn it around and think, if I care about what I care about and it doesn't feel like it fits within the definition of what this show is, then how do I let that creep in? You do it naturally by the questions you ask because you're a super curious cat, but how do you actually justify that for a whole show? You've done it by throwing it in the deep end by people on death row, et cetera, et cetera but you've done it in the same format probably. That's not right. 
it's too jarring for your audience. You've got to ch- you've got to change that. You've got to ease them into the bath. And audiences that are seeking out those human stories, for example, which is really where you're leading to, they're seeking them out anywhere. So there are other people doing them, but you're not known for it. So then you're giving yourself permission to sort of widen the aperture and changing the the ability for that communication. You can seed it into your core or you can have it sit completely different as a franchise. So you can either be a house of brands or you can be a branded house. Your choice, man. (laughs) I would recommend you be a branded house. Oh, you just needed these extensions. You just need to open it up and go, wow, what are we talking about today? What are we going to be talking about? You know, it could be happening in your kitchen. It could be happening anywhere. Like I think the dirty B-roll stuff is where you end up with those really interesting nuggets, you know, of truth, of, you know, just understanding where human empathy comes, you know. We're still in a human-to-human business, thank God, you know. We have the ability to communicate in a way that says, I trust you in milliseconds. I believe that humans trust each other in milliseconds. I know from a handshake it's either this is going to be great or I need to get in and out of here as quickly as humanly possible because this is not my people. You with me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so given that, the rest of this is fodder because we've already had that moment. You know, it's like walking down a dark alley and getting cold chills thinking something is wrong here. Our fight or flight comes into play. I think it's the same in business. You know immediately whether you're going to trust somebody and give them the tools of trust or you want to get out. That out could take 10 years, by the way, but you're going to be bitter and twisted by the end of it. So how do you actually redefine that and give yourself the ability and permission to change that along the way? All I'm saying is if I was if I'm sitting here and you're giving mixed signals to a team, it's because you've actually haven't defined what your purpose is in a way that allows them to say that's something we're going to that's our that, a mission by the way is is what you do. Your purpose is why you're doing it. And then how you do it, that's what a team can determine. It could be black boxed and beautiful in here, or it could be dirty and B-rolled, it could be casual and fast, it could be, you know, it could be written, it could be your newsletter drop. Oh, there's an, the way you execute, up to you. There's a thousand channels out there to deal with that. But how you do it authentically, it's just a, it's a better view of Spencer. You know what I mean? Because mm. nobody calls you Spence. <laughs> and if they do, you probably correct that. <laughs> My mum. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go. That's really valuable. Thank you so much for sharing that information with you. That means a lot to me. Let's let's go back and talk a little bit about people. Sure. And the challenges that people face, not only in the workplace, but the in the in the creative space. Because a lot of the creatives of this world generally either look misunderstood or feel misunderstood and aren't allowed to be who they really want to be. If you take that guy that's, you know, that's painting acrylic on canvas and he's in the studio and he's up all night and that kind of stuff, that, that's, that's my kind of vision of, of that truly creative person, you right. know? The, the, the lights hanging, the bulbs hanging by the wire and he's in that, whatever that room is, his, his, art, his art studio and, and there's crap everywhere, but he's just feeling it, you know? He's, he's being true to himself. Right. And then you have people in the, in, in, in the commercial world that aren't allowed to be as creative as their creativity will allow them to be. So it's almost like you're stifling somebody who can run the 100 meters in 10 seconds and say, no, just, could you just do it in 12? Could you mm. do me a favor? I don't want you to go that fast, okay? Mm. Just, just hold it back a little bit. How do people that are in those types of, or have those types of challenges, how do, how do they get a chance to really push themselves out and, and, Great and, question. and demonstrate who they really are? Well, depending on the industry, there are boundaries, right? And some industries have more boundaries than others. And if you are a creative stuck in an industry and you are 
sort of misfit in that industry, you have a choice to either try and extend it and see whether it can be reflective of you or you leave. Now, switching industries, so what? It happens all the time, no big deal. Some industries seem to be more flexible than others. You know, the internet industry, for example, or the new emerging technology industries seem like they're more creative. But And that creativity might be the ability to write incredible, incredible work through Python, for example, or JavaScript front-end or build VR and AR expressions, etc. Creativity, by definition, is very ill-defined. But really, I think at the heart of it, you're thinking about the person. So if your creative outlet is stifled at work, but you love the work that you do, then your creative outlet comes elsewhere. And you know that. That could come from somebody's ability to play guitar, publish an album, write, uh, spend time you're working on their personal fitness habit. I mean, there's different expressions of creativity. And what we've certainly found is those who've been challenged by uh, all of those expressions I just talked about can find a home in places like you know the internet and these social, social networks and their idea of creativity is validated by likes and love. I think that's a bit sad, personally, um, but it's one of the criterias for it, you know, because they're, they feel validated and they feel excited by it, but um, I feel it's a bit limited. But, you know, there is no easy answer for how do people express their creativity. It determines on what their personal values are. And with big brands nowadays, or any brand for that matter, how important is authentic altruism? Yeah, I don't think it is. Okay. That's why I'm saying I think it's more about affinity. It's not about authority. And what's amazing about that accountability is that if you find that, you know, from a, you know, I come from a publishing world back in the day with media, as you know, mm-hmm. um, we are an authority. We'd like to be. But today authority, as you know, particularly in things like the news cycle, is less and less valued. It's who has an audience that speaks. Is, is, a, is that authority true or false or validated? I don't know. But I can tell you that if you have an audience that feels like it's open and it has trust and it has – like peer-to-peer reviews are way more valuable than confronting somebody with an ad and expecting them to click on it. So as a brand, it's like, well, how do I pivot that around and stop that, that ad from blocking somebody? And how do I make a peer-to-peer review even more valuable? Mm. Well, what is it that I'm providing that's valuable? And when people say, well, you've got to add value, what do you mean you have to add value? Is that a statement or is it real? And if so, what's your definition of adding value? Like on a Friday afternoon as you send out a podcast newsletter, do you put a playlist on there and say, this is my favorite playlist and I'm going to hang out and go walk the dog on a Friday afternoon? That could be valuable to somebody that says, oh, I, can, I understand where Spencer's at. It's no, no longer are we talking business. We're talking about what a playlist looks like. Like there's all different definitions of how people extend themselves. There's, there's that, all that, these different... Fucking bong, 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 going on in my well, head right all these, brilliant. There's all these different definitions of how people can get closer to the real value and the real value is whether it's a brand whether it's a product that i'm wearing or buying or using we moved out of the world there's only three things that make something successful so let me just talk about what i believe in architecture and the foundations of success of a brand real simple real simple and you're going to know these but i'm going to i'm going to pick on one particularly for you and it's every band's problem by the way so there are three things one is performance you, you, when you said, look, I need to understand how I can reconcile an audience that knows me with why I can do stories that I care about. I'm paraphrasing you, but I'm giving you mm-hmm. kind of what you said to me, summated that. And you said, you know, part of that, Jingy, is this infrastructure. It costs money. I have the ability, you know, it's success. I've been at this now for six years. 
258 podcasts. It's very successful. 278. I missed it by 20. I wasn't <laughs> listening very well. I need a bloody notepad to write down this shit when I'm speaking to Spencer, apparently. But here's the deal. What you didn't tell me, that's all performance, by the way. Uh-huh. Every single brand on planet Earth goes to performance. I need to have 15% more sales. I need to make sure that blah, blah, blah. It's like, really? That's performance. And you can get there by spend. Mm-hmm. You can get there by media mix. You can, you can get there. Performance, great. But if I said, so, well, what's the story, though? Why, is it, why aren't they enjoying the, the content of being a lateral thinker? Well, it's linear. You know, I have an audience that feels like my story relates to them. So then you'll focus on story. I'm like, okay, now I'm hearing your story. That's great. But what I haven't got out of any of that and what I don't get from a lot of brands, but I do, particularly in the category of, say, fashion, I do understand where we're headed or autos, is the biggest one and it's the hardest one to crack, and that's feel. So what's your brand feel? Hmm. You with me? Yeah, I know. I know the so if we go outside, I have no idea how to If we it. go outside and we, you know, we jump into a car today and we close the doors of a Land Rover, you know the different chunk sound mm-hmm. than if we jump into a... I don't know, Toyota Camry. Yeah. So uh, an economy car versus a performance car, mm-hmm. you know within milliseconds the sound, the smell, the texture, mm-hmm. all of that sentience, that's feel. Mm-hmm. How do you translate those physical attributes that some brands have had the honor of actually gifting themselves? How do you translate that to digital? How do you translate that to the physical? Or how do you actually translate that? Most people, nine times out of ten, most people, most brands don't think about it. Wow. It's the only thing you should think about. How does it feel? How does it feel? So let me just, uh, let me give you context for that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm here obviously in Dubai doing a presentation at Jitech, and it's great. But when people, um, when I jump on stage, people think, wow, he's a crazy looking dude. What's he going to teach me? And they sit back like this, cross arm like, well, what's happening here? And I'll either say, put your phones away, scan this code, I'll send you the deck. Just let's let's go on a journey. And they quickly realize, I kind of know what I'm talking about. And they start to lean in and lean in, and it's fantastic. But I, I understand what I'm, what I'm giving them is a totally different feeling from what they had previously. Five people on a panel talking about AI ethics, God bless. So I'm going to paraphrase that. I'm going to give them a context they can think about that complements those five subject matter experts. I'm going to do it in a totally different way. Because I understand what I want somebody to leave with, but they don't know that coming in. But I can tell nine times out of ten when somebody stands on stage, I know what I'm going to get before they open their mouth. I do. I personally. Wow. And so I get a sense of it. Now, feel for me is incredibly important. Um, I don't always live it, but I see it immediately in brands all the time. It's kind of how I've architected it, but I see it in people too. So, you know, you are a brand. Back to your context. But... So those three things, again, really simple. They, they shouldn't triangulate. Everyone goes to performance. Mm-hmm. And you said it. Mm-hmm. Love that. Everyone falls into those bad behaviors. Um, but you'll also talk about your story. This is a great way to create value and empathy and all those things. Yeah, I don't really give a shit about either of those. I care about the feel of this. Like, where is this going? What does it do? What's the, what, what is it, you know? And you care about the feel, but does that mean everyone cares about the feel? Yeah, they do, but they just do it by osmosis because you've given them that definition. And I'm not talking ASMR. I'm talking about, <laughs> well, maybe I am. But, you know. <laughs> maybe, yeah. I find that very weird. Yeah. Oh, I think it's delicious. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it, 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 it's just a fascinating way of thinking about it now that I give you those as tools. It's just one of those things to, you can imagine now. 
Because once you've got feel, you then you then that sort of envelopes out even further. Like, what are you here to do? Are you here to educate or give people imagination or give them permission or, you know, what's the feel of that? You know, we're back to that. Not oh, how do I make sure I get a great sponsor that feels like it's, you know, I'm sponsored by Shaw Mike, or Canon Camera. You know, maybe it should be I don't know, something else. I don't know, man. That's that's what feel is, and once you define that, then you can redefine that. Because your stories, that your your story is truth. That doesn't change. Your performance, that's up or down. You determine that. But don't put that on your team. Mm-hmm. You all got to come back to feel, and feel can only be determined once you understand what your purpose is, which is why you do it. And that's the only KPIs. It's the only thing you should qualify. That's it. You redef- redefine it. You know. If I was you, I'd be sitting here and saying, oh, I'm not looking for brand recognition. I'm looking for brand love. I want people to love what I do. That's what I want. I want them to say, you know, Spencer has given me not just the tools to feel like I'm better educated at a dinner table talking about crypto this week, (laughs) (laughs) but he also gave me this incredible story about somebody who spent some time in prison. And the biggest takeaway was that, you know, love rules or whatever the takeaway was. I wasn't expecting that. That was the unexpected moment. What What the things that are expected of you, that's easy. You know, it's like, wow, let's just rattle it off. That's predictable. It's just you're doing it in multiple genres. The unexpectedness, that's where it's like, ah, wow, that's a story you're never going to get back. You know? Mm. What people say about you when you're not around. What people say about you when you're not around. It's it's so easy to say, so easy to forget, but so important to remember. Big time. Mm. Yeah. And that applies to like brands, man. You know, you look at these sto- you look at these stories of brands, and either they've done it by design because they're super brilliant that way, or it's happened by accident. But you look at brand like you know, I don't know why we're talking about. Well, I'm referring so much to fashion today, but you know, when people talk about brand story, I love Chanel's. Do you? Yeah, I, I love the two point five five bag and the history of that bag. You know, the bag I'm talking about, this little bag that has the chain on it that. You know, all the fashion arts have had for forever. The wardrobe, I'm sure. I'm sure you do have one. You wear a handbag really well, I'm sure. Yeah, I do. But you know, (laughs) it was launched in February 1955. It's why it's called the 2.55. So it's the launch date. It's got a it's a clutch purse. It's got a chain on it because Mm -hmm. Gabriella wanted to be able to have a spare hand so she could smoke, and it was the first bag to have that. It's iconic. It has this cross hatching on the leather, Mm -hmm. which is actually from the blanket. Of the, of the horse blanket as she learned to ride. And when she learned to ride, it was side saddle at the time and she, was, she wanted to hack that. So she rode over the saddle like a man does. So she modified a man's suit to do that. Um, she raised in an orphanage, it's why the bag is black. You open up the bag, it's burgundy on the inside, which was the color of the nun's uniforms. It has a zip pocket in the inside, which, which she would hide notes from her lovers. And it has a little pocket on the back, which has a slight smile on it, which is the smile of her favorite painting, which is the Mona Lisa. So all of that alone is just an incredible story for one little tiny iconic bag. And that's just one little moment of that brand. And that's why you'll find that brand is probably 30% more expensive than anyone else. It's not because of the materials necessarily. It comes with an incredible history. Um, I was listening to an interview the other day with, uh, the, who's the boss of Louis Vuitton? Bernard? Uh, he, yeah, Bernard. He, he knows it? Name. Yeah. Whatever mm. his name is. And he said most most businesses do their research to try and understand the the consumer, and then to understand the consumer, and then find the products that fits the consumer. He said that at Louis Vuitton we don't do that. Right. He said we design the bag. He said and they get it. Wrong. We design the item. He said. He said, and we make mistakes and we get it wrong. But when we get it right, people follow it. 
And that's the way that we go about building this business. And I thought that was really interesting because 99.99% of the time it's like, yeah, let's understand that consumer. Let's understand that audience. What is it? What's the problem and what problem can we solve for them? Whereas with this, they're like, we don't care. We believe people will follow good stuff. Yeah, how amazing is that? And um, you know, and then they're, if they're not the big one, Nike is the biggest apparel brand, but they're if not the biggest, one of the biggest in their space, aren't they in the world? Yeah, they are. And you know, the history of the Birkin bag is a really good example of that too. You know, oh, the Hermes bag, the yeah. Birkin bag, yeah, because yeah, that know. was the lady, was it Jenny? Yeah, on a plane trying to figure out how to put nappies in a bag. I mean, it's a phenomenal story for a very humble beginning, mm. and that a lot of it's got to do with these incredible anchoring stories of these humble beginnings and. They, they end up being iconic because they they have a utility to them, which I think is really interesting. But mm. yeah, and you look at somebody like Nike, same same thing, you know, the waffle shoe and mm-hmm. it's it's phenomenal. Well, it's, I know the whole history of Nike because they were one of my clients when I was living in Amsterdam. So, I, so I, I, before the Shoe Dog book and the movies came out, I, I knew about Bill Bowman and the whole start of running spikes and going to track meets and whatnot. Yeah. So, and High I also, jumper. Yeah, mm-hmm. also, because I'd met Phil Knight as well. I, I knew um, about him going to amazing. Japan years ago when he was a kid. So this whole story I knew about. So when the book came out, it was I was an avid reader of the book. But I always loved the fact that he did that because we had Brendan Foster, who was a long distance runner in the UK, and he was in charge of the brand in the UK before it became Nike it was Blue Ribbon Sports oh. and so this this brand and then they, I get frustrated because people call it Nike and right. I'm like it's not Nike it's Nike it's the Greek goddess of victory they're like yeah, yeah. you know <laughs> but, but then while you're there you also learn the story about Adidas and Puma about the Dazzler brothers you know because they were two brothers that fell out with each other and if in Nuremberg a small town in Isn't Germany, that amazing? and one went across the other side of the river and went fuck you and he yeah. set up Puma and yeah. they, they went to town and competed with each other yeah. and, and so that, that kind of I, I love those stories and that 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 to me makes the product 10 times better because of that story now if you look at those if you look at nike and you look at adidas as two brands they go at the same audience in a different way uh-huh. you know if you look at nike it's all owned and operated and the shoe designer is the hero of that brand mm-hmm. as you know if you look at somebody like adidas i believe their fundamentals are they go with collaborations you know, they go with the Yoshis for the Y3. They go with Stella McCartney for the mm-hmm. for the for the audience that she she contains. So I think once you've got a definition of a brand that's competing, overlapping like a, a massive pancake, the way you have to create definition to each other is to determine who's going to play in what area. Mm. So Adidas with collabs versus Nike with their sort of own and operated. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting if you look at Nike and if I asked you or most people if we asked them. What, what they think they are, they'd say it's a high-performance brand, you know, the extreme athlete, the just-do-it of the world. Mm-hmm. If you look at Adidas, well, for actually, all the category, you know, most of their revenue comes from lifestyle products. Those people are never on a track, dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're buying, you know, hoodies, and they're not, buying the, yeah. they're not buying the kicks necessarily. But the idea of collaboration, the idea of, you know, owning your brand inside your own franchise it's really interesting, you know, it comes back down to that. Are you going to be a branded house or a house of brands? You know, and inside the portfolio of Adidas, you know, for me, it's Jeremy Scott and Y3. I mean, I think they're both dope kicks in my mind. And then the ones that are core to their brand, like the stands, the only ones that I really like there was the Pharrell ones because they have a different color set. So, again, it's collab. And when I think about Nike, you know, you have the Jordans and you have the Air Force Ones, et cetera, et cetera. They're internal designers. Uh-huh. Very different way of thinking about the same category. Yeah. Brands that can actually play in the same space. That's why they're differentiated and why they can survive. It's really interesting, isn't it? 
So I'm 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 a Jordan Low fan, and I've got I don't know t- 12, 13 pairs of Jordan Lows in there. Yeah, and and I love them. Yeah, and you know, I really really love them. But do you know when I love them? When I learned how to buy online. Yeah. Because <laughs> I never bought online. Yeah, yeah. And one of these guys that's like, no, I need to go to the shop yeah, to try put them on. on my feet before I buy them. And then one day I bought a pair online just to give it a go. And I was like, oh, they fit. Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> I'm size 43. <laughs> I didn't realize that. <laughs> and, then, and so because it was the same brand and the same shoe, I knew it would be the same size every yeah, time. Yeah. So then I went on a spree and 14 pairs later, all sitting in, in the cupboard. and uh, Much greater variety than going into your local Nike store. Yeah, there is always them. much greater variety online. Yeah. And yeah. it's almost become, and you know, my wife's an avid shopper as well, and it, not that I love shopping, but now it's like, it's a chore to go shopping. It can be, for sure. You know, yeah. if, if, if for me, it's, there's too many people, there's, yeah, there, there, there's hassle, you know, we're all at work. The best time to go to a shopping mall is nine o'clock on a Monday morning. But you have to understand, though, coming back to feel, that brand experience is an extension of that. So if you're an established brand, online is going to help somewhat. Mm-hmm. But there are times where brand experience has to be physical brick and mortar and because people have too much time shopping and it's become homogenized. So it's taken the brand essence out of it. If you buy Aesop's as an example, you know, when you buy their soaps. Aesop's? Aesop. You know, A-S-O-P, Aesop. A-E-S-O-P. A-E-S-O-P, yeah. Aesop. You don't have Aesop soap? You know the brand? It's from Australia, it got yeah. sold to... We, yeah, I know the brand, it's just, just not one we use. Yeah, it's sold, I'm sure other people it got do. sold for billions of dollars, it's a soap brand. But you know what's amazing about it? Each one of their stores are very, very different depending on what part of the world you're in. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. And so there's no uniformity to no, that? No, oh, except for the product, the packaging. So, But the experience is very different. Uh, if you go to a Zara, for example, mm-hmm. let's go really basic. Z- the merchandising in each Zara store worldwide is different because it's based on... The store manager, not the headquarters, that determines what the what the um, the types of products that are actually going to appeal to their audience. So there are definitely experiences that that need to be more enlightened by having brick and mortar because it is brand experience becomes mm-hmm. more visceral, and online definitely serves a purpose for that. But it's not one hundred percent. See, I won't go into a Zara, right? Because there's nowhere to sit. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, because uh, I take my kids shopping. They love Zara. Take them into Zara, and I'm like, get whatever you want. Try. There's nowhere to sit, huh? I'm I'm the dad. I'm like, where's the chair for me? Yeah, I'll stay in here. I'll spend a lot of money. Just just, can I just sit somewhere? Yeah, and I'm perched on the side, leaning against yeah, the mannequin, yeah. and, you know, <laughs> uncomfortably under the looking, stairwell, or looking <laughs> completely inappropriate by the entrance to the female changing rooms. As I'm sat there waiting for my daughters to come out. It's just like not right. But to me, it's like, why can't I sit somewhere? Yeah, you know, there was there was a store I used to go to in the UK years ago that I would only buy my clothes in this store. Because the moment I walked into the store, they said to me, do you want a cup of tea or coffee? And that one cup of tea or coffee, whenever I went in there, okay, was for me what tied me into that shop. I'd go in, they'd make me a coffee, they'd ask me how I was, okay, and I would never, I would just go up and point at things that I liked and they'd just take them and, and then what size are you? And any anything that was a problem, they'd come and pick it up, okay, yeah. if need be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that for me was the, and, and whatever logo was here wasn't necessarily significant it was it was that experience it was an easy hassle-free experience yeah it made it made the the, the experience fun well actually it also elevated the experience for you my, my, my favorite uk designer is oswald botang uh-huh. and oswald's a, a mate of mine and what i love about that is that the idea of having something that is highly expressive in its craft 
but the craft is incredibly tailored. Mm-hmm. All of those little tiny elements of making you feel great mm-hmm. is just the idea of tailoring, bespokeness. That's yeah. what Richard James does for me. Okay, same from that designer as Oswald mm. Bolting. He's he did that for me. I met him years and years ago, and I was at someone's house, and they said to me, and he said to me, "Why don't you come in and I'll make you a suit." And I was like, really? He said, yeah, come in when you're in London next. Come in and I'll make you a suit. And I was like, me? And I'm no, nobody. <laughs> like, me? And he's like, I'll make you a suit. And that was at a famous person's house. Anyway, um, I went to his store and he met me and he made me a suit. Yeah. Okay. And then from then onwards, I was... I was morally obliged. I was duty bound. No matter what it was, there was something subconscious that just pulled me whenever I was buying suits only to him and his store. Of course. Okay. And forevermore. And to every one of your friends that says, I kind of need Absolutely. a suit. Do you know anybody in Savile Row? And that's going to be the go-to for you, which yeah. makes perfect sense. And that's exactly why that's a brand feel, man. Mm-hmm. That's an extension of that brand is that brand story. It didn't lead with the story. It led with the experience. Mm-hmm. Now we're getting somewhere. Mm-hmm. Not, you won't believe this suit. It was 15% off. Mm. Yeah. Uh-uh. it's 15% more probably and god bless but it solved a problem it, and it gave you this bespokeness this tailoring this those old world environments like peer-to-peer reviews and um, referrals and word of mouth and bespokeness mm. those old calamities are back because we're in this digital experience go buy your 10 nikes that's great man god bless but it's not every experience is going to be like that and there's opportunity for people that if everything feels homogenized on a screen, you need those experiences to feel what this brand is going to give me because we're in these homogenized platforms where you can't really express yourself differently because the tools are too limiting. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. David Singh. What the Singh. hell are we talking about? <laughs> what a conversation. Thank you so, so much for giving ah, me your time today. You're incredibly I've welcome. so much. It's been fantastic. <laughs> me too, man. Hopefully, you've got some value from it. Yeah, too. yeah. <laughs> it's like, Big time, brother. Didn't realize it was this cool. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, anytime. It's been a pleasure. 